Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have the author and historian Anne Velisis on the show. Anne is the author of a number of books, and the focus of our conversation today is on her latest one, Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish, which came out in May 2020 history of this amazing shelled creature and the human relationship to its flourishing and potential peril. Please enjoy our conversation. Uh, I recently interviewed an author of a book of short stories, and each of the short stories was uh, taking... Uh, the life of an animal and seeing the world through their perspective. It was kind of a biography of animal life. And through that conversation, we talked about the idea of animal biographies, in particular, as it relates to this wolf that was killed in Yellowstone, be kind of, it became a famous wolf. And people started writing biographies of this particular wolf that died. Now, I, in some ways, I view your story as well, kind of in this genre. It's a focus on a singular animal life form. How do you think about the challenges and opportunities about writing about specific animals? Well, it's interesting that you use the word animal biography. And in my book about abalone, I I conceived of it as a book that was really about the animal-human relationship, because in part, we as humans are really interested in our own stories. And and so much of what's happened to abalone over the past 13,000 years is really intertied with humans. But having said that, I was always really wanting to push myself to bring the perspective of the abalone to the center, you know, trying to say not only, you know, it's a meat, it's a shell, it's these things that we as humans like, love, but it's an animal that has its own place in ecosystems. It's an animal that's actually been on California's coast for more than 70 million years. You know, it's evolved in this place that is so deeply a part of the ecosystem and bioregion, and really try to convey that perspective too. And I think that comes from my own perspective that we share the earth with kindred creatures. And I would like that to be more part of our culture. And so I like to bring that perspective um, to my writing. That said, this is the first time I've written about an animal. I've always been interested in animals and nature, um, but it was really fun because it gave me as a historian, the opportunity to to study the history of science and really look at how did scientists come to understand these animals that are that live in deep water. It's it's a real challenge to understand um, animals that are difficult to observe. And so there was a lot to learn, and I, I found it to be a fascinating project. Yeah, and we'll come back to climate change at the end of our discussion. One of the benefits of looking at animal biographies, even like a biography of a species like abalone, is you're seeing how they adapt to change and specifically climate change, which humans are having to do as well. So we can kind of look at some animal life and see how they've adapted to changing environments. And there's applications there for human life as well. Before we get into abalone, though, I want to just kind of briefly touch on uh, your two uh, previous books. I want to start with Kitchen Literacy. Kitchen Literacy, and I believe, what year was it? That was published in 2011? No. Uh, 2007. 2007. Okay, wonderful. So yeah, it seems to me incredibly um, in terms of the increased focus on sourcing of food products. I'm wondering two things. One, 
what led you to that, to kind of catching that wave really early in those early days of Michael Pollan's books? But also secondarily, do you think in some ways that, you know, we can kind of look at that famous Portlandia episode where they're like trace back the particular animal and where it came from. Uh, do you think in some ways the food sourcing thing that's a victory that's been won. People now think about it constantly, or do you think it's still just mainly an upper middle class concern? Well, a couple of questions there. So first of all, how I got into it and I, you know, I read Michael Pollan's books. I also, my other book, which you were going to ask about is a history of wetlands in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I really realized uh, that so much of environmental change. And at that point I was thinking about agriculture primarily, but also transformations in estuaries and coastal areas so much that there was so much with our food systems that changed the environment and that there were these really i mean it was just inextricably tied together and that you know if when we polluted bays for example this is a 19th century problem you know we totally polluted shellfish that had been a food source or when we were making farmland we were transforming wetlands that had been habitat for waterfowl that were you know there were all these things going on and so i was really got into that connection between food and the natural world and you kind of the ecological things and changes but also people's perceptions about them and that's when I was really interested to think about that topic of how did the food system change when as the as America industrialized. And it's such a huge topic. Different people were working on different things. I ended up focusing on like, what did people think about it as it as it came? So I was definitely just in there thinking about it. I think to your second question, is it something that's been won or is it still kind of a, you know, upper middle class thing? I think it's a big thing like on the West Coast in Portland and California, probably on the East Coast too. It's still, it, it is probably an upper middle class thing. And so it's not one, it's something people still need, more people need to understand and learn about, I think. And, and maybe not in that fetishized way, you know, that the Portlandia episode you mentioned makes kind of makes fun of, but in a general sense that, you know, it, it's part of understanding, understanding where your food comes from is part of understanding that we are connected to these larger systems and we need to have our eyes out because about what that means. We can't necessarily expect that these systems are just going to keep working the way they've always worked in the face of climate change or other changes and that there's consequences that may not be what we want. So anyway, those are the kinds of things I was interested in, and as a historian, I always really like to drill down and look at some really specific stories and to get into some of those things further, you know? Yeah. And I think when I go into a Costco now and I can buy pasture-raised eggs, I think that is a, a, a good sign for the times. And I, I do wonder whether people need to, how, how deep they need to understand food sourcing or whether the system will take care of itself in some ways. And so I'm hopeful, but again, that's a complicated subject we could dig into. I, I do want to ask a question about America's wetlands. What did you learn about the changing uh, concepts of nature when you were uh, writing about America's wetlands, how people viewed nature and how that changed over time? Well, that, you know, that's the backdrop that was so fascinating because in that book about wetlands, we went from thinking about wetlands as a landscape that was actually like 
evil and scary. And we had all these ideas about low-lying places, you know, places of disease because there was malaria. They were, and they were difficult to transit. You know, we really had kind of a bad idea about them. That, you know, there's famous landscapes called like the dismal swamp and such. But then through time, as we started to fill and develop these landscapes and drain them, we came to realize that they had all these values for us that had been kind of hidden that we didn't realize. And that was, you know, habitat for wet, for waterfowl and for fish, you know, nursery habitat for fisheries and all these other connections and that they stored water, um, preventing floods, you know, all these things that wetlands did for us. And then when we started losing those values, we started to realize, well, wait a second, maybe we need to take a, a second look. And at that time was a time, I think more broadly, as people were moving into cities, that they started to think about nature a little bit differently, not only as a utilitarian thing, like what I'm going to use, what I'm going to get out of it, but also, you know, the ideas, the transcendentalist ideas of like, Thoreau and Emerson started to come into view and people started to look at nature for beauty and scenery. And that even applied to wetlands, even though we don't think of those that landscape, you know, in that way, starting quite so soon. But anyway, it was fascinating to see how that change happened. And of course, ultimately, at the end of the 20th century, we passed uh, laws to protect water quality and wetlands. And so it was an interesting to see that whole arc of change. And reading the book, and I didn't read the whole thing, but I read uh, good portions of it. You know, it's kind of a, of the genre of the William Cronin changes in the land, you know, kind of seeing that. And I think I think tracing the history of ideas is so important so people can really see uh, how our conceptions changed and uh, what that translates to in terms of, you know, everything from public policy to how people interact with the land. We're going to turn really hard right into abalone. Can we just start by describing what abalone is as a species and some of the most common forms, shapes, and colors? They have such beautiful colors. And where else they exist in the world? Yeah, well, abalone is a mollusk. And it's, as opposed to a bivalve like a clam, it's a univalve. It's a, actually a snail, but it looks like kind of one big sort of flattened shell and it, it's an animal that has a big foot inside that shell that holds itself, attaches itself to a rock, and then clamps that shell down around it to protect that big foot. So that's what an abalone is. And they are in all sizes. The abalone in Europe and the Med in the Mediterranean North Sea are the size of an ear. They're tiny, but the ones in California, the red abalone or in particular are the largest in the world can reach up to like 12 inches in length. And they literally can be like the size of a salad bowl. They're so big. There's seven species on the coast of California, but they also live in New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, Japan. There's about 57 to 60 species around the world, kind of depending if you're a lumper or splitter. So and they I mean, can be categorized by color, but also sometimes by shape. Is that correct? Well, I think a lot of the ones in California have names. We have the species red abalone, white abalone, pink abalone, but others are, you know, it, it's just sort of the, the names refer to like white abalone refers to the flesh of the animal and little tentacles called epipodia are white in that animal. There's a black abalone that the flesh and the epipodia, not so much the flesh of the 
that you would eat, but the outer thing is black. So, you know, it's not, it's not kind of like a hardened rule what the names are, the, the common names are that they're, that they refer to the skin or to the shell color. Mm. If that makes sense. Took it me does. a while to figure that out. <laughs> and can you, can you speak a little bit more about the muscular foot? That is such an important part of the animal. Are they all the same size? Do they serve the same role for all? Yeah. Well, yeah, that big foot, that whole, you know, as I said, if you think about a snail, it's kind of an animal, a gastropod that holds onto the rock. And some of the animals are smaller and some are larger. Most abalone in California are subtidal. So they live in really deep water. And of course, in the deepest water, there's less turbulence. So, you know, it's holding onto the rock. It moves around, the animal can move around possibly to find food. One species lives in the intertidal zone. So that, the black abalone, um, it needs to hold, its foot really needs to hold it through the surf as the surf crashes hard on it. So you can imagine that animal's muscular foot really has to be kind of stronger. So there are, as I said, seven species. They all kind of have slightly different niches in terms of depth and in terms of like water temperature that they live in, uh, north to south. And, you know, there's, I think a general sense that an abalone is an abalone, but they're all similar, but they're all also a little bit different. Well, let's talk about indigenous use of abalone. And I, I, I want to kind of talk about it in relationship to the way shells were used on the East Coast primarily as forms of currency, but also in some ways similar to the way Californians used abalone shells. Can you talk about how they're used in California and what makes that distinctive? Yeah. Well, abalone... Abalone shells were used by indigenous Californians, not quite so much like currency because they weren't incredibly common. They were probably an uncommon material. And, and we have to go back and just talk about abalone being the thing that's so special is the shell is shimmering and iridescent. And so this material is just so appealing and compelling. I mean, when you see an abalone shell, it's just you know, it's, it's wondrous. You just can't believe how beautiful it is. So that material was very fascinating. And about 6,000 years before present, indigenous Californians started using it as a material to make, you know, ornaments and decorations and tools, actually, probably a little bit before that, because the material is so hard, but also because it's so glimmering and shimmering. And those pendants and were traded far and wide throughout California to the to the desert southwest indigenous tribes there so that's i think what makes it unique in particular and it's it's a material that you know it it is still important to native californians it's it's just got this the luster and the glimmer and in fact one of the things i learned that was fascinating is it's used in regalia which is the kind of like the skirts or neck pieces that indigenous Californians use in their dances and ceremonies. And the sounds of abalone, when those skirts and neck pieces are danced together, they kind of clack together and make a lot of noise. I and was going to ask you about kind of the metaphysical meaning for some indigenous groups of abalone. Yeah, it's and so that sound that the shells make when clacking together, you know, is thought of as the animal singing, that the spirit of the animal and the dancer come together and that that song of the animal is, is comes into the space. And, you know, I mean, that's my, 
my attempt to explain it, but it's profound. I mean, it's this really amazing, you know, different way of thinking about connection between people and nature. And so anyway, it, you know, those are some of the different ways that it was not used just as kind of a currency. Certainly abalone was traded. Um, in some places too, it was kind of considered as almost to resolve very difficult conflicts, you know, like had, if there had been a death, a murder, or, you know, some really awful thing that happened. And how do you get over that in, in a society, you know, abalone shell could be part of, you know, resolving those conflicts, trading or giving that. So it had a real special meaning. Well, and then something happened, which is uh, people started uh, arriving from other places. And uh, I think the biggest change that you describe uh, to, you know, the life world of abalone is, is the hunting of otters. Uh, can you talk about what happened uh, once both Russians, but also Spanish and different people discovered otters and otter pelts and started uh, killing them in mass and importing them to other places or exporting yeah. rather? Yeah, this is like the, you know, the prelude in some ways to the big abalone story, which is that, as you said, you know, when the fur trade showed up on the West Coast and uh, all these Europeans and started hunting otter pelts, nobody realized that that had many repercussions to the marine ecosystem. And the biggest one was that, or one of the big ones is that sea otters are a primary predator to abalone. So, the ecosystem with otters meant that abalone lived in kind of in cracks and crevices and rocks, and they were not incredibly common. That's what I was saying. They were kind of rare. They were very special. When otters were hunted off and basically killed off, I mean, almost down to extinction, they were almost extirpated, abalone started to flourish. They were able to reproduce and kind of into super abundance and kind of come out from the cracks and spread around and reproduce and reproduce. And so within a very short time, a couple of decades, they were literally super abundant in the shallow waters, in the intertidal zone. And as more and more European colonists started to show up in California, they came to realize, they thought, oh my goodness, these abalone shells, they actually called them the California shell or the Monterey shell. Um, they're just, the abundance of them is just a natural thing. This is part of the ecosystem. They did not perceive, they didn't realize that they were already witnessing this, an ecosystem that was kind of out of whack, that had already been changed. And that misperception is really what sets a story, sets our understanding of this animal. We kind of had the wrong understanding of the animal right from the start as we started to use it, which I found to be really fascinating. It makes you kind of wonder what other things we might have gotten wrong, but you know, that you could, you could show up in a place and of course think you know it all, but not get it right. And that has repercussions. So anyway. Yeah. And the next kind of subject I want to talk about is Chinese fishing. So abalone had a certain value in Chinese culture and then Chinese immigrants who arrived in California who were excluded from other industries found something where there was, you know, effectively similar to like a gold rush, an abalone rush. But then there was a reaction to this. And I think it's probably hard to disentangle racism and xenophobia from, you know, conservancy issues. How, do you, how did you think about kind of untangling those things? 
Yeah, it was really complicated. Yeah, the Chinese came over looking for, you know, trying to get involved in the gold rush. And as you said, they were excluded, but they found this abundance of abalone that I just described. And, you know, they knew, oh my goodness, if we could get this abalone back to uh, China, it would be, you know, everybody loved it. And it had already been kind of overfished over there. So they ended up just developing an industry and they would collect the animals from nearshore environments. They would dry them um, on the beaches. They had drying racks and they would eventually, they would have larger boats would come and pick up all the abalone. And within a couple of decades, it got to be quite a large industry where the other fisheries on the West Coast, you know, like the early American ships would be carrying maybe five tons of seafood. The Chinese junks could carry 15 tons and they would go up and down and, and gather all these abalone um, that had been, they would collect all the abalone that they, that had been gathered. And then it would be, the dried abalone would be exported to, to Asia. So people that saw the piles of shells and the racks of abalone and all this stuff started to get concerned that so many abalone were being taken. And this was at the moment when we were also starting to worry. We were starting to worry about conservation because we had decimated practically the sea otters and the bison and the passenger pigeon and on the East Coast, salmon and shad. You know, it was kind of like we were realizing that there was a limit to this, what we had perceived to be endless abundance. And so people seeing that on the California coast started to raise concern. But as you said, it was very tied in with xenophobia and, and racism too, because there was tremendous anti-Chinese sentiment in America at that time. And the way I looked at it, you know, trying to disentangle it, I mean, you can disentangle it. It's both of those things are part of the story. You know, there were way more abalone being taken that had been taken and people didn't understand that ecological context at all. And there was tremendous racism. So ultimately what happened was Congress passed the Chinese exclusion acts and they were more tied to, you know, that racism and xenophobia than they were to the abalone fishery in what had happened. You, you know, at that time, there was still not any kind of, you know, fish and wildlife regulation in California at all. And so you'd have things like little counties or would just pass regulations saying, you know, they were going to charge Chinese fishermen a lot of money to have a fishing license, or they just say, you know, you can't fish. It, there were those kinds of things uh, of communities trying to respond to both, you know, their spontaneous exclusion versus yeah. coordinated. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it was kind of a, you know, an, an interesting time to go back and look at, you know, and especially now, because of course we are having like, you know, we're talking a lot about racism right now in our society. And to go back, I think as a historian, when you go back and you read the kinds of things that were written 120 years ago, it's kind of a shock to understand the general, like the level of ambient racism at that time was, was incredible. It was inconsiderable. And how other... you, I was going to just ask how you would contrast kind of, you know, after the Chinese Exclusion Act, we have another Asian immigrant group that started to focus on abalone, the Japanese immigrants. How would you kind of contrast their approaches to fishing? Well, so yeah, like the Chinese, the Japanese also had, you know, we kind of had like this Pacific Rim fascination with abalone, um, the, the meat, the shell. And so after the Chinese were excluded, there were about 20, 15, 20 years that 
the abalone rebounded. And when the Japanese came, you know, another set of immigrants looking for work in our, our country, in America, they found, they similarly found some immigrants found the abalone abundance and realized that they could generate an industry. And they started it again. This time, instead of using tapping abalone in shallow waters, they had a heritage in Japan of diving for shellfish. And you may have read in places about the ama divers, these women who would just hold their breath and dive down, freehold dive. It's it's a really fabulous and amazing story uh, to read about their tradition. But California's waters are much colder. You couldn't just uh, free dive without, you know, wetsuits and all that kind of stuff. So, which they didn't have back then. So, but there was development that time of a technology to do bridge, to build bridges, undersea kind of construction. And they started to try that technology for abalone diving. That's the hard hat dive suit. And so the way that worked in the abalone context is you'd have one diver with a hard hat suit. You'd have a boat with about uh, six to eight other crew members and somebody would be cutting kelp. Somebody would be hauling up and down the, the baskets of abalone. And then people would be pumping air down a tube into the hard hat dive suit. So the diver could stay down underwater for a long time and another person's rowing. So they really became masters of being able to go out into deeper waters and around the reefs and to get the abalone. So there was another whole kind of round of, of fishing that happened in that in that context. And there was racism there too, but there are other, you know, just another chapter of that, which actually it led to another interesting part of the story, which was in 1913, again, still sort of an absence of fish and game laws, but they decided to just curtail export of abalone to out of California. And that that moment is really important for California abalone because all of a sudden that massive Asian export that had been going on for like about five decades without, you know, regulation really too much came to a standstill. And it opened the door to develop the domestic industry for abalone. And one of the things we didn't talk about earlier is that up until this time, abalone was not much regarded. It wasn't regarded as a premium seafood. It was regarded as kind of tough and, you know, not what people wanted to eat because of the racism and this negative association with like Chinese food that, that, you know, white Americans kind of thought Chinese food was, you know, weird or they disparaged it. They didn't want to eat it. So that's why I love Fuchsia Dunlop's book so much, you know, her <laughs> exploration of Chinese food. I'm still trying to get over some textural stuff myself and working through that. Yeah. And so, so there was this gentleman I write about in my book, uh, Pop Ernest. He was one of California's first celebrity chefs. He was a German gentleman. He was living in Monterey. He saw all the massive export of abalone to Japan, the dried abalone going. He realized that it had this umami flavor. That's one of the things that makes it so special. And he kind of had this idea that, gosh, maybe I could come up with a recipe for abalone steaks or fillets, kind of like Wiener schnitzel, uh, uh, you know, and he did. And that's what it took for Americans to eat it. And one of the things that's really important about that, that foot, you know, I was describing how it's to hold it for the animal to hold on to a rock. It's really tough. It's collagenous. So to make it 
palatable and delicious, you have to pound it and pound it and pound it for to tenderize it. And so he kind of figured all that out. And, and then during a World's Fair shortly thereafter, you know, he promoted it widely and it was promoted as a California food. And because it was not exported to other, not only to other countries, but to other states, it really became like a special California food. It was the kind of thing that you would eat if you came to California or if you went to a California resort or you know, it was served in California hotels. It was really a food of the place. And I think there's something very interesting and special about that. And it became kind of a food associated with California, you know, ultimately with beach culture. And as more people started to recreate in the ocean, diving and exploring and stuff that's later on. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, early conservation efforts. Who was Charles Edwards and why was his idea of abalone reserve so visionary for the time? Well, one of the things uh, that happened, you know, as I was describing to you, when people saw all of the abalone being fished out, there were concerns raised. And so one of the early things that the California Fish and Game Commission did was said, hey, let's let's study, let's send a biologist down to study this. And so Charles Edwards was one of the first marine biologists hired by the state of California to go down and study the abalone fishery in Southern California. He had to learn how to dive in those dive suits with the Japanese divers so he could go down and see what was happening. And lo and behold, he, through his observations, he realized that they were taking more than could be sustained because turns out abalone are very slow growing animals. It actually can take, you know, like 12 years for an animal to get up to the size that ultimately became the size limit, like seven or eight inches that that became the fishery limit. And he just realized, gosh, we've got to do something different because if we don't do anything, they're, they're headed towards extinction. They're headed towards extermination. So his idea was that you could have little kind of reserves where abalone could breed, kind of have brood stock of abalone parents, and then rotate around fishing areas, but that you always keep that brood stock. And it was a really visionary idea because it was kind of like the idea for marine protected areas that didn't come didn't become more broadly considered until the late 1990s. The idea that you can have some places where, you know, fish and marine life that we want to use for food could have a place to be protected from fishing so that, you know, to maintain brood stock or parents. Is anyway, it similar to like in agriculture when you leave an area fallow for a while to kind of rejuvenate resources and then rotate? Yeah, that is an actually really interesting metaphor that is similar. Yeah, it's the idea of like, instead of taking everything from everywhere, we got to have some places, you know, where, where there can be rebound or where, you know, if you want to have fisheries be sustainable. So, you know, it was an interesting idea, but because as I was describing that background of racism, you know, basically the people in the California legislature um, we're just more interested in that idea, you know, and so they were just focused on on that idea. And so they just did that, you know, export, ban the export, ban, tried to tried to curtail the Japanese fishery at that time. So they yeah. kind of so, sometimes we want government to get involved. But once government gets involved, then you add a whole bunch of other variables. And I, I'm, I was hoping you can add on too by talking about how you know, jurisdictional issues between the various kind of government organizations that were trying to get involved in, in you know, conserving, yeah. but also protecting stakeholders. Yeah. So, well, just real quickly, you know, I had mentioned earlier that before in the 19th century, there really was no 
state fish and game regulations or agencies. So it was sort of a patchwork of counties and game wardens, and they tried to, you know, keep an eye on it, but they didn't really, they didn't have the capacity to do much. It was, you know, local government doing its best. And then finally, there was an effort at the federal government and also at the state government to say, look, we got to do better in California. We've got this tremendous marine fisheries resources. And if we just let happen what happened on the East Coast, we're going to lose them. So they got this Fish and Game Commission, the U.S. Fish Commission together, and they started doing science and coming up with fishing regulations, ideas like size limits and seasons and limits. So they were trying to figure out how to do sustainable management. And ultimately, you know, fish and game became kind of the purview of the state in general is the the state fish and game. Now it's called the fish and wildlife regulates the take and management of these species scientifically, and also by pulling together stakeholders often to figure out what's going to be a way that, you know, commercial fisheries, sport fisheries can, can be sustainable. And one of the things that was really interesting in my, in my story, I thought too, is to realize that, you know, tribal entities were really excluded from, from that until very recently. So that's interesting given there is such a long history of, of connection and interest in abalone with California tribes. So, but that's something that is, I think, still in progress of, of, you know, changing right now. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the conflict between commercial and sport, sport fishing? It seemed like that was something that affected some decision-making as it relates to the government. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This was so interesting. So early on, I mean, like for a century, but starting early on with the Japanese fishery, you know, they were commercial fishermen that were going out and taking lots of abalone. And at that time, there also developed a sport fishery, people from shore wanting to go out and recreationally harvest a few and bring them back and eat them on the beach or just collect the shells. And so there were, and then through the 30s and 40s, as scuba diving became more popular, more and more recreational divers started to go out into the ocean and bring back their own seafood and, you know, love that experience. And so both of these fisheries were growing and growing. And while the commercial fishery was maybe a smaller number of people taking a lot, and then the recreational fishery was a lot of people taking lesser amounts individually, there became tremendous animosity between the two groups, kind of blaming each other for taking too many uh, abalone. And then we started to add in, in the mid 20th century, uh, a couple of other factors, the sea otters rebounded from. That's good. That's what I was going to ask next. And I was going to, I was going to also add to about the, that, you know, if you could talk about that one otter that keeps eating surfboards. I don't know. That's a really funny story, but the, the, the sea otters came back, but it kind of landed right in this, you know, conflict of sort of at the same time that these two other fisheries were ramping up. The sea otters came back in the Monterey area and started spreading south into central California, which had become like really one of the most productive places for the abalone, the red abalone fishery, which in red abalone is really the most abundant and kind of commercially important species. And there was really this, everybody was it was like a blame game, you know, everybody's pointing fingers, blaming the otters, blaming the sports fishermen, the commercial fishermen, kind of like, you know, 
instead of realizing that, gosh, all of these stresses are starting to add on and on. And so like, what are we going to do about this? And one of the things that I found so fascinating with that return of the sea otter, you know, you remember I was describing earlier on that we didn't quite perceive the, the situation right. Well, when the sea otters came back, you know, it was kind of like a light bulb went off and we finally started to realize, oh, this tremendous abundance that we've been enjoying isn't just because abalone are, you know, super productive and they can reproduce a lot and be sustainable. It's because we had this like a windfall, we had this excess surplus and kind of been mining it out. So the, there was there was a change in understanding of ecology and end of history, but it was very hard for the managers of abalone and for our culture to kind of catch up with that understanding. And so conflicts, people were in these conflicts that persisted and it was really hard to resolve them. Okay. And then, yeah, and I don't, I don't have anything to add about the history of that that sea otter eating surfboards, but it is. <laughs> I just find it funny, <laughs> mainly. I I want to leave some of the towards the end of the book where you get a little closer to present day for readers to go and explore in your book. But I do wanted to give you a chance to talk about temperature changes and how that affects abalone. Yeah, well, so we can go right from the story I was just telling you because. What happened next is we started to get environmental stressors adding to the situation where we had a lot of fishing, return of the sea otters. And one thing I found fascinating is we started to get these El Ninos. And I didn't realize until I started to do this history that people, you know, now we know El Nino is sort of a regular occurrence every you know, several years, we get this pulse of warm water. It's part of the larger oceanographic cycles. But we didn't realize that till the 1980s. We kind of thought every time one happened, we thought, oh my gosh, it's a fluke. It's weird. We didn't get it. But it turns out when we have these periods of warm water, it can be bad for a species like abalone because it's bad for kelp. It makes it hard. Abalone eat kelp and kelp need cold, nutrient-rich water, and we get a pulse of that warm water, it can be very damaging and destructive to kelp. And then and oftentimes El Ninos are accompanied by storms, so kelp get plucked out, it's just not there. Then abalone can't get enough food, so they don't grow, and when they don't grow, they can't reproduce. And then warm water also makes it likelier for there to be diseases. And so all these things kind of started happening in the 1980s. And there was a big El Nino in 1983 where people started putting this together. Up until that time, we actually believed that abalone reproduced every year. And then we realized with this, the El Nino came that that's not the case, that environmental stresses and changes could be very, could exert tremendous influence as well. So you could have maybe abalone reproducing successfully only every 10 years, or maybe even every 20 years, sometimes more frequently, but not always, you know, so we started to realize everything was getting more complicated. And with the temperature you know, issue. I, in my book, I called it like postcard from the future, because when scientists started putting together these ideas or, or understanding how sea surface temperature, elevated sea surface temperature could affect invertebrates that live in the ocean and these animals that reproduce by putting their gametes just out into the sea, it kind of started to set us up to realize like with climate change, we're, we're kind of getting a little view of what this could be like for these animals that live in the ocean. And it's, it's scary and it's something we have to pay attention to. And then, you know, added to that with, with climate change, we realized we have this 
parallel or parallel problem of ocean acidification that also can affect marine life that has shells like abalone affects their ability to make shells. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you have these layers of environmental stresses on top of overfishing and that make it really challenging for abalone. So we went from having these incredibly abundant animals that are so much part of the place to having um, two species that are actually on the endangered species list. And all of our California abalone species are now considered to be imperiled, you know, sensitive and, and, and not good, good straight. So, and that led to the closure of the fishery in 1997, the commercial fishery, finally, probably we pushed it till too close to the edge. We, but anyway, and then the sport fishery finally ended up being closed in 2017. So anyway, I, some of the things I think about, you know, I had to kind of think about what does this mean? How is that we can take these, how is it that we can have these animals that we value and cherish and love for the the meat they give us and for the beauty of the shell? You know, I come to it as a beachcomber and finding a shell. What a, what a magical thing, what an amazing experience to have happen on the beach, you know? How can we let these animals become so imperiled? And you know, part of it is that not realizing how all of these many things can stack up, you know, that early blame one cause. And then when you blame one person or one group, then you can't solve the problem because it's, you know, it's actually what they call wicked problems, too many problems stacking up. And how do you, how do you solve those? So, you know, some of the things I reflected on are, you know, you have to have for animals that we use as foods, wild animals, you know, you have to have a more precautionary effect. You can't kind of wait until they get so imperiled to start to try to conserve them. You know, um, there was sort of this tipping point where we were, we were thinking about, or meaning we, the state of California Fish and Wildlife was thinking about these animals as how are we managing them, managing them for a fishery. And then at some point, you know, it kind of dawned on them, we can't do that anymore. We just got to save these animals. And so another, another thing I, you know, so we have to have kind of a more precautionary view with those wild food animals. We have to recognize that there are, that there are multiple complex causes that, that imperil these animals. I also think having more perspectives at the table probably would have been a good thing in this case. I mentioned that, you know, tribes have been excluded. People that just want to have abalone as kindred spirits aren't part of the discussion. It's primarily a discussion of commercial fishing and people that are fishing. And those are the people that have the higher level of interest, of course. But I think, you know, having had tribal perspectives in the room might have given a different time frame or a different sense of what was needed. So, you know, I think those are some of the things that I think maybe would have helped but, you know, I, I think it's important to look at stories like this for that reason and to understand how we get ourselves into the situations we've got ourselves into. And so we can learn from them and get out of them. And one of the things, you know, it's hard to be hopeful when you write a story about animals that are become imperiled. But I'm an optimist, you know, because as a historian, you know that that times change, people change, perceptions change. I mean, a lot of things stay the same, but there's a lot that's dynamic and changes. And we have the capacity with our culture to make changes. I mean, that is something we can do. And um, so I was very much looking for the positives in this story. And one of the things that's 
as beautiful to me as, you know, these animals is that human impulse to conserve and to try to restore and to try to bring these animals back. So there's some amazing efforts to try to, you know, bring the most imperiled abalone species back. And through those efforts, hopefully we are going to learn things that help us to, you know, the lessons that we need to learn to help with other imperiled marine species and the challenges that we're going to face with climate change in the marine environment. So it was really interesting to learn about those efforts and and how they're happening and what people are doing and the challenges, you know? Yeah. I mean, you said a lot there that I resonate with. And I, I think, what I notice in environmental writing is there can be a hesitancy to tell optimistic stories. There's mood affiliation that goes on where, you know, you can't really note progress because obviously the challenges are so huge and to, you know, point to this and say, Oh, look, it's getting better. is kind of almost a betrayal of the mood affiliation that's going on. But I do think, you know, if you kind of abstract your book and, and, and you change the title from, abalone to humans developing a more <laughs> inclusive understanding of uh, marine biology it could be it could be a hopeful story based on how you frame it because i think just reading along and watching how humans understanding evolved and changed and transformed i i think you're right i think it i i think you can't help but see it as an optimistic story i mean obviously the collateral damage of uh, abalone and you know the fact that they're endangered now is is a huge problem but I mean, we've we've come so far that it's it's hard not to want to note that. But I do want to ask you how you think now about the sea urchin issue in California, kelp forests, because you're talking about endangered animal life, but now we have a proliferation, right, with the sea urchin issue in California. What lessons do you think if, you know, fish and game and wildlife were looking at your book when we had this abundance of abalone? Is there is there transferable lessons here to deal with this current issue? Yeah, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting, a complex issue because the, what you're describing with sea urchins is now we have an overabundance of sea urchins. We have sea urchin barrens where urchins have eaten down all the kelp. It's actually a problem for abalone rebound because abalone are, have starved from this case in Northern California. And, and there are just millions of urchins out there and right now. And so, you know, there's been some ideas proposed for what can we do with that? And, you know, there were people that were going out and smashing urchins, there were people going out and vacuuming them up. And, and I'll mention that these urchin barons had happened in the past. They're kind of part of ecology, but we have them on a very large scale or one that larger than we had been aware of in the past, at least. And so it's going to be a really hard thing for people through breaking and vacuuming or whatever to to change it but i think the lesson is that it may be hopeful and important for us to do that in some areas to create oases basically of biodiversity you know some areas where we can have kelp and the animals that are present in those ecosystems so that when conditions change that we, that there are, those creatures can then spread out and, and repopulate and repropagate. And, you know, it may be that what, you know, that a disease may come through and wipe out the, eventually, 
you know, reduce the number of urchins. It may be that urchins will be with us for a very long time. And because they are, they're incredibly durable, they um, are able to exist in kind of a zombie state. And I'm talking about purple urchins here, which are smaller kind of urchins. So they're not really edible much. You know, there are proposals right now also to consider reintroducing sea otters in Northern California as maybe a way to help with this. And um, one of the, it's a really interesting idea because it's about rebalancing the whole ecosystem. But right now there's not a lot to eat out there because those urchins don't have, they don't have much food. So they're basically like little empty shells. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complex situation, I guess is what I'd say. But, you know, the history really has a lot to show. It lends a lot of depth to understanding it, I guess I would say. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. You go first. No, 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 no. I was going to kind of turn us a little bit. So you, you, you finish, please. Well, actually I was going to turn us a little bit too, Uh because I wanted to go back to talk about, you know, that little conversation we were having about hope or not or whatever. And I wanted to do that early on in reading about abalone and kind of cultural views of abalone all around the Pacific. I, I learned just in many cultures that abalone was associated with vision and like forward thinking. I mean, like in so many ways or, you know, different like tribes would use abalone shell to cover eyes when, during a burial, you know, kind of like the going to the next phase so that there would be vision to see beyond. There were parts, uh, you, you know, coming of age ceremonies, just different things like that. And I just always thought that as I was writing my book, I thought, you know, there's something about these shells that capture our attention and that, you know, in this context, you know, maybe they can give us some vision forward, you know, because they are so, they draw our attention to this story. And there are just many other creatures, many other sea stars that are important to the ecology that have been impaired by this transformation, you know, kelp die off that you're describing and diseases. So anyway, just wanted to bring that up. Yeah. And I, I, I want to kind of take us a step back now because this, this podcast is about the history of California. I'm curious if you had any kind of transformations in the way you view California before your research for this book and after, if there's some things you understand differently or appreciate differently about the state of California. Yeah, really great question. And one thing I have to say is that it was so interesting in this book research to realize that abalone were, you know, like there It's so many, so many kind of moments in California history, you know, when galleons washed ashore and there'd be a pile of abalone shells or, you know, <clears throat> so many different spaces along the way. <clears throat> I would say that the biggest transformation in my thinking were two things. One was to just have a deeper understanding of the extent of kind of indigenous California. I mean, I was aware of the history of California indigenous people, but as I started to dive in deeper to understand, as I dug in deeper to try to understand the history of indigenous Californians and abalone just really opened my eyes to how many people were here, how, how the cultures interacted with the environment. And it was fascinating. And the second thing, is just to really recognize that interconnection between the natural environment, the marine environment and California history. 
And, you know, as an environmental historian, I'm always interested in how, how people change nature and then that changes people back and that, that interplay. But to go through, you know, California history through centuries and to see it just really reminded me of that again, how important the natural environment and especially the coastal environment is to the history of California. So I would say those two things were really what I learned. Yeah. And, well, and I, uh, I, I think about when I think about history of a place, there's there's a tendency and I'm kind of pulling from this great book I'm reading called Composing a Life about this tendency to look for continuities and kind of dis and kind of cover over discontinuities in a, in a desire to see a through line. But like you said, you know, it's it's give and take. It's back and forth. It's up and down. It's circular. You know, it's. You know, sometimes our relationship with nature is is uh, what's generative, and then sometimes it's not, and it just, you know, it changes constantly. And I, I think your book does a great job of, you know, looking at discontinuities and seeing how, you know, there are times when things are great and there's times when things aren't, and it's not a clear linear path always. You know, sometimes it can be back and forth, and that's what I, one of the things I appreciate about your book. Yeah. Well, thank you. It is, I think, you know, the it is the our work as historians to to put the line there, to make meaning out of the chaos. And that's what we, you know, our work really is, is to tell and a story is essentially a line of words. Yeah. Um, and yet how we weave in the complexity to that is, is really, you know, part of the the fun and the challenge of it and and helps, you know, we have to do that so people can can understand the past and in and 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 understand the all of the rich parts of it, you know. And uh, one one thing that I'll just say is just really fun about this book in particular is there's a lot of hard parts in this book because of you know the impairment of the animal. There's also a lot of joy, I think, and that was one of the really fun parts, which is that people loved eating these animals. They loved the shells. They, there was just so much joy in interacting with this animal that was part of the culture. And I think that's that was something I really wanted to try to capture and talk to so many people when I was writing this book and, and heard their personal stories about that connection to place that came through that this animal. And anyway. Yeah. We're going to close now with books, which is my favorite section. So it's a two-part question. First, who are some of your favorite environmental writers working today? And then secondarily, what are some books about California and the environment that you would recommend to listeners? One book that that was influential to me in writing this book is a book by Callum Roberts called An Unnatural History of the Sea. And it was a book that really looks at the history of marine environments, you know, kind of a global perspective, but there are sections in there that are relevant to our Pacific coast. But I think that perspective, because we tend to think of landscapes and especially marine environments as not having a history. We only, you know, we we tend to think of ourselves as have our, we humans as having the history, not those places. But I think that was a really interesting and important perspective. But, you know, getting back to the topic I was mentioning earlier of understanding indigenous California you know, one of the really powerful books I read was about, gosh, I'm not going to remember the name, but do you know the name of the one about the genocide, California genocide? Yeah. Ben Madley's book on American yes. genocide. Yeah. I found that to be really a difficult book to read, but 
but a very powerful and important book to read, you know, to, to, again, to understand that perspective anyway. So that I would think is probably one of the most important recent books about California history. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, sometimes we can find our connection to nature through other forms like poetry. Like one of my favorite poems of all time is about the ocean. It's the fish, the, the poem, the fish by Marianne Moore, and I just think about her first two lines about wading through the black jade and shutting itself in the barnacles and you're really connecting to the sea through different media can, can be wonderful. I finally thought of the book that I actually, oh, I would, great. a book I really found interesting reading when I was writing this book was Pierre Alagona's After the Grizzly, which is a book about California endangered species. And he has a lot of case histories in there about what you know, California's endangered species, starting with the grizzly, but also the San Juan kit fox and California condor, and really goes into in-depth case histories about each one. And he looks at an interesting question about species conservation, you know, that we have this belief that habitat, solving habitat problems will, you know, solve imperilment, but oftentimes there's many other issues involved too. So he kind of delves into that. And since I'm interested in animals and animal history, I really like that book. That sounds fascinating. To close, what what are you working on next? Well, I am actually at the moment, I'm taking a, a break from writing. I've been, I've done a number of talks about my book, which is really fun. I have a slideshow. I love to go out and talk about it because as a writer, you know, you, you spend years, it takes me when you write history, it kind of can take 10 years to write a book and then you want to go out and share it. And not everybody reads books anymore. So it's really good to be able to go out and talk about it. So I've been doing, uh, you know, a fair amount of speaking, but I'm also, I ended up deciding to run for city council in my town. And so oh, I'm a city councilor right now, and I decided to take some time off from writing and, and put my shoulder into just trying to make my town a better place. And it's interesting because when you write about history, uh, you're so often looking at mistakes and things that people do and you think, oh, why did they do that? And it turns out that some of the skills that we develop as historians, which are writing and researching and <clears throat> thinking in a straight line, even though there's a lot of chaos, are um, I'm coming to find our skills that are really useful for trying to figure out how to solve problems. So anyway, I'm taking a little bit of a break to do that for now. And I have some other writing ideas that are in line with food and animals and stuff like that. So maybe there will be a next book, but I think it's good to have alternating currents. Yeah. Well, we're, what we're just talking about discontinuities. Life is like, and I, one of the best descriptions I've heard about a career recently is thinking about your career as a portfolio of uh, different things that you've worked on over the course of your life. And I'm glad our concluding message for potentially a young people listening <laughs> is major in history because it's relevant to so many things in life. So I'm glad you've delivered that message. I uh, <laughs> talk, to, talk to kids about why they should major in history all the time. And so this was a perfect explanation for some of the skills that you acquire. So I appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find more about your work? Well, I have a website, which is anvalysis.com. It's a little bit hard to spell, but if you, it's, uh, you'll probably have it on your blog yeah. site. If, if you look that up, I have a website with all my books and writing, you know, some writing about the books there. And that's probably the best place to go. And yeah, there's some links there to other talks or things like that, but uh, you can learn more there. And of course you can pick up the book or order the book. And I've gotten a lot of 
good feedback about the abalone book. A lot of people have enjoyed reading it. It's kind of like a little armchair tour through California history, but told through the uh, perspective of this one animal. So it's, it's, it's fun that way. Thank you so much for talking with me, Anne. I really appreciate it. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.